0: very, very well uh, over the past few years, and uh, I love Kevin's heart. I love Kevin's passion for ministry, and and I love his love for Incline Church. It it runs deeply, and I know I'm not sharing anything about this guy that you don't know already, and so I've enjoyed getting to know Kevin, getting to know Rachel some, and uh, yes, Kevin and I have spent a few hours on the river fly fishing, and uh, Kevin is relentless at fly fishing. I love fly fishing, uh, and, and I love seeing—I love seeing Kevin on the river fly fishing. Um, so it is—it is good to be with you here this morning. You know, one of the one of the questions that I get to ask pastors on a pretty consistent basis in our work at PastorServe is this question: How is it with your soul? How is it with your soul? So I ask this question to you, Incline Church. How is it with your soul here this morning? It is well. It is good to hear that response because that's not often the response I get. Uh, usually I get a deer in a headlight look when I, when I ask that question. So we're going to experiment here this morning over the next 30, 45 minutes. You're just going to turn to your neighbor and you're going to take turns talking about the state of your soul. Right. So go ahead and do that. I'm kidding. Uh, I, I, would not, I would not have you do that. I mean, we'd much rather talk about the weather, right? Or our favorite sports team, or how the kiddos are doing, or our recent travels, or whatever else. But to talk about how our soul is really doing, um, that, that's tough. That, that, that is a tough question to answer with honesty. It really is. You know, it's not a question that we ask today in the life of the church. Think about that. When was the last time somebody asked you to question, how is your soul? How is your soul? What is the state of your soul? It may come out like this. How's your heart? And ultimately, what they mean parenthetically is, really, how is your soul? And even answering how's your heart is not easy for us to answer because it has multiple layers to it. And, And let's be honest, it takes a fair amount of transparency and vulnerability to really engage with answering that question well. But here's the reality. That wasn't always the case in the life of the church. You've heard the name John Wesley before. He's co-founder of Methodism. Uh, And and back in the day, back in the 18th century, within the Methodist church back then, John Wesley and others started what they... Thought of as bands, right? I heard the the name community group. I'm assuming you have community groups here, churches have small groups. When you think of bands, think of small groups or community groups. But here's the deal: when they got together each week, they had to work through this list of questions. The very first question was this: how's your soul? I mean, are you kidding me? I mean, we can't even have a warm-up question about how was your past week, how was your job, how the kiddos, how's the weather? how are your travels? You jump right to, how's your soul? But it's really an important question. And what I've learned over the years is, uh, years ago, I wouldn't have known where to begin in answering a question of that magnitude. But more in recent years, I would say the last 10 to 12 years, I've come to the place where I recognize it is one of the million-dollar questions of life. And, uh, John, you will remember this from the Woodman Valley days. Uh, I used to be on staff there with that church. Uh, my wife's still on staff there. I love it. She's been there 18 years now doing missions work. Uh, but our former pastor used to say that uh, we, with the million-dollar questions of life, we tend to dole out $5 answers. I, I think there's some truth in that, and maybe especially... To the million-dollar question of, how's your soul? What's the state of your soul? It is an important question. And so over the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk about this idea of soul. Um, what, what ultimately satisfies the soul? I think, we, I think most of us have the answer to that. What continues to satisfy the soul? What is the state of your soul? What does a rested and restored healthy soul look like? And so today, we're going to focus on This idea of soul satisfaction. And we find it in a very familiar passage of Scripture coming up here in just a moment. I'll let you go ahead and turn there. And it's found in John chapter 7, 37 through 39. I'll read that here in just a moment. Um, But but before I go there, I want to remind you of another passage of Scripture that's found in 3 John verse 2. Because. The Apostle John had something, had some striking words for his good friend Gaius. A couple thousand years ago, Gaius was a church leader, and and John says something about this man's soul. And this is what he says, beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes with your soul. You know what he's saying in reality is, I hope every other aspect of your life, your marriage, your relationships, I, I hope your emotional health, your spiritual health, your physical health, I hope all of that stuff goes as well as it's going with you right now when it comes to your soul. Think about that. John knew that his, friend's, his friend Gaius, Gaius's soul, was at a good place. I mean, if, if, if my friends had to talk about the health, the state of my soul, I might be a little fearful of that. I mean, the people who know me the most, who know me best, what would they say when it comes to the, the question of how's Wade's soul? How would my wife answer that question? How would your best friend answer that question? How would your significant other, how would a good friend answer that question about you? It's kind of scary to think about it, right? But it is one of the most important questions in life because the soul is who we really are. Okay, so moving to John chapter 7 verses 37 through 39. You're there already. This is one of the most dramatic moments, I believe, in all of Jesus's life and ministry. Provide a little bit of context here. Uh, Jesus is in Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths, and it's a time of giving thanksgiving to God for his great provision over the years, and it's looking to God for his provision in the future, And, and Jesus eventually at the Feast of Tabernacles, he goes into the temple as Jesus often would do, and he begins teaching. So he's sitting down, he's teaching as you would do back then, and as is done now in, in, that, in that context. So Jesus is sitting down teaching, and I'm, I'm telling you, he's teaching to a divided crowd. What do I mean by that? Well, there are some there who, who believe that uh, he's a posture, he's a pretender. He's, he's pretending to be the Messiah, and so they want him arrested, and I'm sure eventually put to death. Okay, there are others in the room who are impressed with Jesus' miracles. They've seen Him do some things. He speaks, He teaches with this authority about Him. And so they're impressed. They believe that there's something unique about Him. He very well could be the Messiah, who, whom He claims to be. And, and add to that, Jesus, well, let's just say He is, he is using some offensive language. He's saying that some of the most religious people in the temple that day, that they don't even know God. That's offensive language. Beyond that, he's saying, you know, you don't have the power to arrest me until I will that I be arrested, which talks about his authority. It talks about, you know, he is really claiming to be God here. It's almost like Jesus is talking about the elephant in the room. You know how we do that sometimes? We talk about the elephant in the room, and the other person is the elephant. That, that's what's going on here. Jesus has raised the heat significantly in this conversation 2,000 years ago. This is a tense moment in his life and ministry. What will he say next? Well, let's hit the pause button on that and give a little more context for what's going on back then water was a central point of the Feast of Tabernacles, and and the priests would go out the first six days of this week-long celebration that really celebrated the, the harvest of the grapes and, and olives, and, and so the priest would go out to the Pool of Siloam. He would march in procession out there with all these people following him, and, and he would go to the Pool of Siloam with this golden vessel, and he would dip out of the pool of Siloam, and fill this golden vessel, and then he would turn around, march in procession, back to the temple. And he, as he was marching back to the temple, the people would recite over and over this very familiar passage of Scripture to them from Isaiah 12. And that passage was, Therefore with joy you will, you will dip water out of, the, out of the wells of salvation. You will dip water out of the wells of salvation. And the priest would get back to the temple and he would march around the altar, you know, uh, and then he would eventually pour the water out as a drink offering, as, a, as an offering to God that reminded them that this is the God who brought water out of a rock for the ancient Israelites This is a God who sustained us as we look in the rearview mirror of our harvest and, and to realize this is the God who provided the moisture, who provided the rains that caused that harvest to come about. This is the same God that we're praying to who's going to bring, you know, the rains for the harvest futuristically. It was the central point of the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths. It was huge for these folks, water being a central focus of it and praising God and thanking God for his provision of water. Okay, we go back to the heated moment in the temple with Jesus, the divided crowd, the central point, uh, the focal point of water in the Feast of Tabernacles. What is Jesus going to say next? In light of the heat of the moment, in light of the water being the central point, of this passage 2,000 years ago, the Feast of Tabernacles. What's he going to say next? Now we come to John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39. It gives context. On the last day of the feast, we don't know if this was the seventh day or the eighth day because the, the feast was a week long, but, but on the seventh day, the priest would march around the, the altar seven times before he poured the water out. So we don't know if it was the seventh day or the eighth day, but it is an epic moment here. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart, the King James says, interestingly enough, his belly, which is the deepermost part of who we are, out of his be- belly, Some translations say spirit, soul. We can take it as spirit or soul, but let's run with soul here. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his soul will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Folks, friends at Incline, I think it's in this passage of scripture that we find Uh, five truths, that if we will engage with the five truths in this passage of Scripture from long ago that certainly has relevancy for us today, we will experience this deep satisfaction for our soul. So five truths. Truth number one, your soul is thirsty. Your soul and my soul is thirsty. You know, clearly Jesus is not talking about physical thirst here, though the soul experiences something like a physical thirst. What happens when the body, what happens when you go without water for a significant period of time? Or not even a significant period of time. You go without water for just a few hours. You get thirsty. I get thirsty. You see, the body was made to live on water, the soul was made to live on God, and we experience something like a soul thirst when we are not engaging with Jesus, when we're not engaging with God and all that he has in store for us. You see, this is one of the most significant things to learn about ourselves, that we were meant to live on God, to be sustained by him, and, and to know that he is enough. And to rest in, this is not a word, but I think it works in this situation, to rest in Jesus' enoughness. You won't, find it, you won't find it on dictionary.com, I promise you. But Jesus is enough for us. And, and you know, what's fascinating is I think oftentimes we mistake this deep soul thirst that we have for this longing for More. More what? Well, more success, more attention, more approval, more money, more sex, more fun fixes, all these other things in life. And then when all those things have been met, more, more likes, more views on social media, <laughs> we know what that's about, right, in our culture today. When all of those things have been accomplished, we still have this deep soul thirst within us. Because none of those things ultimately satisfy us. You know, I think it's C.S. Lewis, well, I know it's C.S. Lewis uh, in, in The Weight of Glory, his work from years ago, where he sums up well what's taken place within us when we pursue these superficial activities or things or longings In our lives. He sums it up well in The Weight of Glory when he says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Think about the implications of that. Your soul is thirsty. That's truth number one from this passage. Number two, the water is free. The water is free. Remember earlier when the people, I said that they would recite from Isaiah 12, it's Isaiah twelve three. Therefore, with joy, you will draw water out of the wells of salvation. You know what Jesus is proclaiming here in this passage of Scripture? He is the well of salvation. He is is the water. He is the spiritual water that we need for salvation. And only He can provide the spiritual water. He is the source of it, and the source of it is infinite. It is bottomless. It's a bottomless well. It's a bottomless sea. It's a bottomless ocean. And Jesus says, It is free. There is no no idea of earning or meriting this water. It's simply there for those who want it, it's simply there for those who are thirsty. The water is free. Here's the third truth that really attaches to that truth pretty quickly. It's there for those who are thirsty, but but here's the reality. The condition is your need. (laughs) You've you've got to recognize the need within you, right? And and the need exists in all of us. We, We were created with the need within us. You know, it's interesting that Jesus did not say, all of you are thirsty. Come to me, therefore. He didn't say that. He said, if anyone is thirsty, there's the condition. If anyone is thirsty, Jesus knew that everybody within earshot of him, he knew that they were thirsty. Jesus knew that all of created humanity was thirsty. But here's, here's the deal. You've got to recognize the thirst within you. You individually have to recognize the thirst. It's there. It, it, might, get, it might get buried with all the superficial stuff that we pursue in this life, right? I mean, the, the making of mud pies in the slum. I've been there. <laughs> I know what that's like. That is superficial fulfillment that that is not lasting in nature it's very short term it's a fun fix and then it and then it passes and so jesus says you have to recognize the thirst that is in you and and i've got to tell you of the people i love most on this earth um some do not recognize this thirst And I would love to be able to say to them, you are thirsty, I'm going to go to Jesus and that's going to take care of it. Well, I do go to Jesus in prayer and I pray for their soul, I pray for their hearts, I pray for their spiritual journey. But I can't bring a person, myself, to that point of desperation for God's intervention. It's recognizing that within yourself. It's of your own volition to say, I am desperate I've tried all these other things, and they don't work. I need something that's lasting. I need something that's eternal. I can't make that decision. You can't make that decision for somebody else, and that's heartbreaking. It is heartbreaking when we recognize that we can't do that. It could be a son, a daughter. It could be a good friend at school. It could be somebody at work. You can't make that decision for them. You can pray for them. You can encourage them. You can journey with them. But that person has to recognize the desperation, the thirst for God's intervention, to quench the thirst. The condition is your need. Here's a third truth or a fourth truth. The invitation is ongoing. The invitation is ongoing. You know this from studying this passage of Scripture, many of you. This verb tense for come, in verse 37, carries the idea of continually coming. And this continually coming to Jesus is an expression of our belief, our reliance upon Him. That He's enough. There's enoughness in Him. He sustains us. And Jesus never intended, I don't think, for us to come to Him once you know to kneel down to take this long gulp and to get up and walk away and go wow that was good i think i'm good for the rest of my life <laughs> right he never intended that but oh how many times i i do that and i go seasons where i'm not drinking from the well of jesus on a continual basis that's what he meant That's that's his desire. That's where fellowship and intimacy is found. That's where strength is found. That's where wisdom is found. That's where patience, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, that's where that's found. And I can recognize in my life pretty quickly, well, let me just say my bride can recognize in my life pretty quickly When I've not been drinking deeply from the well of Jesus. And then, you know, and then a conversation, sometimes a bit of a messy conversation. I don't feel the need to elaborate on that. You've had those conversations before yourself where someone can tell who knows something about the state of your soul, they can tell something's not quite right. And, and you see, the soul longs for integration. What do I mean by that? You see, every one of us lives life on two stages. There's a front stage and a backstage. front stage and a backstage. In my front stage life, your front stage life is a public, visible you. It's where you accomplish, it's where you work, it's where you engage with others in the neighborhood, it's where people like me in my profession, in my calling, it's where I stand here and I share with you on a Sunday morning at Incline Church in this elementary school. It's what we want people to see and know about us, really. Ultimately, that's what our front stage is. But we also have a backstage. And the backstage is is often dimly lit like most literal backstages it's dimly lit it's cluttered it's a bit messy and and we're careful who we invite into the backstage (laughs) to see us back there because because yes while there are there are things kind of laying around it's a bit messy it's, it's dimly lit ultimately the backstage is about the health of our soul it's who we really are it's who i really am You see, there's a bit of a Pharisee in every one of us. I hope you don't take offense to that. This is what I mean by it. We can be a little bit too much into image management. It's what I want you to believe about me. It's what I want you to see in my life. Right? But if you were to go backstage, you would see that There's a little bit of incongruency going on there. There's a little bit of a a dichotomy. There's a little bit of a breakdown. (laughs) Because who you say and who you, you know, you pretend to be from the front stage is not who you really are backstage. And oftentimes the things that people will applaud about us from our front stage will actually wreck and destroy our backstage. But we all are susceptible to it. It's, it's not ultimately bad to be a bit of a Pharisee. What's really bad about it is to become comfortable being a Pharisee, to where that's, that's just who you are. So we keep going back to Jesus because our soul is crying for integration, wholeness between backstage and front stage. Integrity is another word. The soul is crying for that, so we go to Jesus who quenches the thirst? Who satisfies us? Who offers forgiveness for us when we fall down? Who offers grace and mercy when we confess? Who offers strength and all the other things that we just talked about? So, why do we keep? Why do why do we not keep going to Jesus as as is, as is? really commanded in this passage of Scripture, come, keep coming. Because I think, we get, I think we get distracted again with the mud pies in the slum. You know, the superficial things that we think bring lasting fulfillment and satisfaction in this life. And that's true. We all have a, prop, a propensity. We are all susceptible to that, right? We all are. But he says, keep coming, keep drinking, keep finding replenishment, Your soul, keep finding satisfaction for your soul. Now, I think it's helpful to talk a little bit about what this drinking, coming and drinking looks like. Is it is it coming to church and worshiping on a Sunday morning? This is the part where you participate. (laughs) Is it? Is it? Yeah. Is it is it is it reading your Bible? Is it studying your Bible? Yeah. Is it prayer? Yeah. Is it is it authentic biblical community with others? Yeah, that's part of it. And and a a list of other things. But here's the reality. Do those things in and of themselves mean that your soul is in a good place? No, not necessarily. There's not a guarantee there. Here's my perspective on that. I do work with a lot of pastors. They spend a lot of time in God's Word. They study God's Word to present and teach and preach in moments like this. Uh they um you know they're doing lots of spiritual things. There's lots of success, lots of impact, lots of momentum, lots of adrenaline from the front stage. But here's the reality their backstage is a disaster. And they've been posturing and pretending from the front stage for maybe decades in some situations. In lesser cases, maybe a few months or a few years. Their marriages are fragile, they're living in isolation, their souls are unhealthy. But they're doing all kinds of spiritual-oriented stuff. And here's the reality. God will get something out of that, but that says something more about who God is than we are. God, as, a, as an Old Testament professor of mine many years ago in seminary said, God can strike a straight lick with a crooked stick. Guess who we are in that sentence? <laughs> we are the crooked sticks. Where God will still accomplish His perfect will, even in the midst of, of the pretending and posturing. How that works, it's beyond me. As I used to say years ago in the Air Force, that's beyond my pay grade. I can't comprehend it, I just know it to be true. God can work, even in the midst of that, and change people's lives from preaching. Even even if I'm not living the truth that I'm preaching, God will use His Word to go out. It will never return void. (laughs) even if I'm not living the word, even if you're not living the word. So we can be doing all kinds of good stuff, spiritually speaking, but our, our backstage, our soul, could be a complete disaster. The soul longs to drink from Jesus. That's who he's created us to be. Now we get to this final truth. And... It's where all of this is leading in Jesus' words of 2,000 years ago. It's this. Your life is not meant to be stagnant. It's not meant to be stagnant. I want to reread 38 and 39 again from John 7 just to recapture again context. Jesus says, Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart, out of his soul, will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. They had not received the Spirit yet. Think about that. We have the Spirit today. It's a gift. But they, at this moment, had not received the Spirit. Whereas yet, the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. You see, we have this on-the-move Christ living within us. And it's, it's not easy oftentimes to get our hearts and our minds around this, but Jesus is saying, if you'll come to me, If you'll recognize that soul thirst within you, uh, you'll enter into an eternal relationship with me. But I don't want it to stop there because I want intimacy with you. And you need me. I've created you to need me. Not just drink once, but to continue drinking from me. And if you'll do that, and we can't do it perfectly, right, in this broken, fallen world, but he gives us grace and strength to, to hang in there. And if we'll keep coming back to Jesus... There is this life that he wants us to live, and there's this river. More, I think accurately, would be these torrents of white water that flow out of our heart, out of our soul towards others in this broken, fallen world for, for his purposes, ultimately, yes, but also for our good. These white waters, these torrents that will flow out of our soul if we'll keep coming to him and drinking from him. So here's the question, rhetorically speaking. This is where you don't answer. <laughs> okay? Rhetorically speaking, what words would you use to describe the water that's coming out of your soul right now? What does that water look like? How much of a torrent? How much white water is there? How much is it rushing? Out towards others in good works, good deeds, a kind word, a timely act of service, a kairos moment, where it's discharged with potential and impact that you've been obedient to. How much that? What of what, what that is true of my life? You know what's often true of my life is I've got a visual here that I'm not proud of. coming from my heart and my soul often is simply a trickle. It's simply stale. It's simply stagnant. And you know what I've discovered over the years, folks, is it's hard to minister to others out of a soul that looks like this. It's hard pretending to be somebody that you're not. It's hard to do that. I think it leads to burnout. It leads to compassion fatigue. It leads from people walking away from the church, walking away from ministry, walking away from marriages, walking away from relationships, walking away from jobs and schools, and the list goes on and on. Because that's not a picture of health. That is not what Jesus had in store for us when he spoke these words 2,000 years ago that even have relevancy for us today, right? So in contrast, this is what I long for, and I know this is what your soul longs for because Jesus has created us this way. In contrast to this visual, that's what he wants. This satisfied, deeply satisfied soul that ministers out of this place of who you are and who you were created to be. Those words... As Jesus looked out at his audience 2,000 years ago, he knew every person in this room had this deep soul thirst. But he gives us a choice. He's not going to force himself on us. He's not going to force that love relationship, but he does know what's best for us, right? And so he offers the words, "If anyone is thirsty, if anyone is thirsty." let him come to me and drink. Not just once, but keep on drinking. Keep on leaning into his enoughness. His power, his grace, his wisdom, and all the life that he has in store for us. Because that is what's best for us. Right? Amen? Let me pray. Father, thank you for your love that just continues to pursue us, even even when we're back in a slum making mud pies. You continue to pursue us. You're relentless in pursuing us because you want a love relationship with us. So thank you for this passage of 2,000 years ago and how it still has relevancy for our lives today. I pray for my friends here at Incline look forward to journeying with them next week as well. And I pray that all of us would just uh, perhaps, in a reflective, quiet moment this week, um, revisit this passage. Help us to understand where we are in it, Father. Thank you for how you woo us into your presence and you satisfy our souls deeply. We're grateful for the words, the invitation that was given 2,000 years ago that still stand today. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink and keep on drinking. Thank you for the gift of salvation. Thank you for the gift of ministry that comes out of a healthy soul. Thank you for how you accomplish your perfect will and purposes in our lives, God, and the fact that you're sovereign and you you have so much more in store for us, I'm sure, than most of us, if not all of us, can imagine or comprehend. But it starts with drinking deeply from you and doing so on an ongoing basis. Thank you. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.